So again, these buyers don't want to basically buy something. The reason why they're buying something like a resale home is because they don't have the time or effort or probably the knowledge to execute. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey everybody, it is Sarah Larvey. Super excited to have you back for another week. Today's guest is Ruben Furtado and some of you guys might know him because he does a lot of the really awesome modern builds that you see out there and he's done really well and actually higher end markets like Oakville where I live and so I've been admiring his work I don't know probably for years now and I was super excited to have him on the show he is brilliant his work is just absolutely amazing think of of those modern houses like to me that is actually I love modern houses that's like my style and one day maybe I will build a house like that and live in it and so he's got some great insight and I also think that ultimately everyone can do a great job and do really well in so many different strategies and so I would just say just careful that you don't get that shiny penny syndrome or that you have paralysis analysis where you think okay well this is a good strategy or that's a good strategy or I should do this or that and that you end up doing absolutely nothing just just know that anything that you're hearing people are successful at it but you got to stick to something you got to pick something and just like people are successful at doing certain things there's other people that are going to be unsuccessful doing it as well and so just keep in mind like I know that sometimes I get questions about oh well you know this birth strategy is great and then I'm looking at rent to own but I also like the student rentals and I would just say, pick one, get into the market, learn it, pick a market, and and then go from there. And at some point, you can always change your strategy, but start with something, get really, really good at something, and just do it, and you will be thankful, whatever whatever that is. I mean, as you're going to hear, there's going to be different strategies. There's people that are doing multifamily that are really doing great at it. There's people that are doing flips that are great at it. There's people that are doing burrs. There's people that are just doing buy and hold or loaning out private money and they're doing well. So again, just learn enough and then go do it. And then you're going to learn the most while you're doing it. And so just keep going, keep learning, take action. And I'm here. If you guys need anything, you know where to find me, Sarah at sarahlarby.com or reach out to me on my website, which is sarahlarby.com or Instagram at investor Sarah Larby. So hope you guys like the podcast and let's get on the show. Welcome to the show, Ruben. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm uh, I'm a big fan of your work and uh, and all of your great modern building that you're doing in uh, downtown Oakville. But uh, before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started? Yeah, so I tend to be pretty long winded, so I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it short. So my background was pretty much always sales, and but very passionate about real estate. And early on, when I, I got married at a young age and we bought a house very early, uh, we had a good experience in buying and selling that house and we made some, some profit in it. And then we saw that there was an opportunity there. So through that, continued to use my sales career to actually allow myself to you know, get mortgages to buy more properties and eventually to the point where uh, we started building and kind of where we are right now. So the career changed. Uh, when I was in the software industry, it got to a point where 
I wanted to leave, but I didn't have the courage because I wanted to, you know, there was a lot of the security with the benefits and, and the income, but eventually got to a point where there was a new manager that came in and he had Googled me and he saw a lot of the stuff that I was doing. Thought that was a conflict of interest with the company I was working for. Yeah. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it put me in a situation where I had to do this full time. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting because so for me, my experience is, is a little different. Like I still work full time as well. And I'm very open with the real estate piece. And between eight and five, I, I do work you know, at my work. And then Mm -hmm. before hours and after hours, I do this real estate stuff. But Mm -hmm. my boss is super supportive. And actually, he bought six of his own properties in the last year and a half. (laughs) Yeah, I think the concern with my boss is he was seeing that I was being very successful outside of the corporation. And the concern wasn't so much me, it was the message it was sending out to everybody else. And then they would put less time and effort into their personal jobs working for the corporation. So he saw it more as a threat, which was ironic, because the people he reported to, uh, who were successful, uh, they were also investing in real estate. Hmm. So either way, like I said, I'm no harsh feelings. I think it was the best thing that ever happened. But it, uh, it it's sad that it took somebody to actually, you know, push me out the door rather than me doing it on my own. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, in, in hindsight, you're probably extremely happy and you wouldn't be where you are today if you still had it, right? You know what, because of being able, like at the, that point, like hearing your story about working and then doing real estate on the side, I was actually doing three jobs at the same time. And even now, I don't even know how I did it because like I said, I was working full time and it was a very demanding position. And then I was actually building a house uh, that I had, it was our very first build. And this was like a massive project that we took on. And then at the same time, I was also selling real estate. So it was chaos. So the, to now look back, and say, well, I don't know if I could do that right now. <laughs> right. And now the career in real estate allows me to have a lot more flexibility, a lot more balance. The best thing too is I get to work with my son. So my son works with me as well. And I think you've talked to him in the past with Austin. So uh, yeah, I'm really, really grateful. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about building. And now, can I assume that you're you're not a landlord? Like you're not holding these? These are essentially, are you building them and just selling them? So I, I pretty much... I try to diversify. So okay. I was building and I, like I was buying, it started off with me buying more from the builder. Like uh, think of a subdivision and mm-hmm. we were buying in subdivisions and we weren't buying with the intentions and selling. It was really more like, Hey, you know what? Our lifestyle continued to change. We were making more money. So we were upgrading our homes like a lot of people do. And especially through that transition between their twenties, thirties or thirties to forties. And they're able to do that because they're advancing their careers. So, but as we were buying from the subdivision, we noticed there was a gap between what the price was from the, the builder in the subdivision to what their resale price was. And with the market also increasing and seeing natural appreciation, it gave us a really good opportunity to kind of buy and sell at that time. And, you know, my wife and I, every time we would make some money on these properties, we kind of high five each other. And we were like, man, that was great. And then the goal eventually became to get into a property that at the time it would have been around about a million dollars. That was kind of what we were looking for. Like it was a house, that's what in Oakville, you would find a fully detached house, two car garage, four bedrooms, nice area, maybe on a ravine, perhaps a pool. That would be about a million dollars to have that with no mortgage. That was the goal. The goal wasn't. Yeah. And that was back then. Now it's probably like yeah, two, so, two and a half. So the, <laughs> I, the irony is that same house that I just told you about, that was the goal for us to have paid. I remember buying that house for 540. And then we, we did crazy landscaping and we'll talk about what we do to our houses to really differentiate them and, 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 mm-hmm. and set a new precedent in sales. But that, the irony is 
like literally just a couple of days ago. So that same property that I bought for 540, this is back in, I think 2010 or maybe, no, I bought, I bought it probably 2007. Uh, either way, I bought it for 540. Uh, we spent maybe about a hundred thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand at the very most with everything. And, um, we sold that a couple years after for like a million forty. That was the highest priced home that sold in that area. Here, here's the irony. Amazing. So what a small world. The person, so that house has been sold twice since. And the okay. current owner actually purchased a house for me that I had. Another listing was like a $2 million listing. And then he had no, when I found out he was the actual person that's living in my original house. So I just sold that house again. And we just sold it for just shy of 1.8 million. So that's how much it's it's gone increased wow. in price since uh, since we originally purchased it at 540. Is this South Oakville? No, this is actually and uh, it was a subdivision north. So it was like what we did in that house is we basically took a, a standard builder type home and we tried to create all the same features that you would see in a very high end two three million dollar custom home in South Oakville. But we actually did that in a like newer subdivision. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. So I'm North Oakville. And so a lot of the stuff we've had to upgrade over the years, because it is definitely mm. builders grade, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, this house was actually in the, so you'll, you'll know is West Oak Trails. Okay. That's where it was. I'm close. I'm close to that. Just up yeah. in uh, near Westmount. Okay. I know exactly. So yeah. So that you'll, and you'll probably see it. Like it's crazy that that house sold for what it did back then and still selling today for what it's selling. Cause now it's going to be more dated. That house is almost 15 years old now. Right. Right, right. So, I mean, I definitely like the the modern look and everything like that. How did you, do you even decide to go to a specific niche like that? Well, one, it was a personal preference, right? That was part of it. The other part was, again, through all those buying and selling in a, in a, as it started to evolve, one of the things that we felt that would was a key to basically set a precedent in price was two things, really. It's, is how do you create urgency for a buyer? And you do that by not having a commodity-based product, right? Right. So nobody was really doing modern at the time. And if they were, it was somebody who was building it for themselves personally, but it wasn't necessarily available on the resale market. So we did it because, again, that was our, our style that we liked. And I remember when we built our very first modern house, a lot of the real estate agents said that that was a mistake because that's such a niche market that there really isn't a market for it. There's very few buyers that are looking for it. And I said, I'd rather have something that very few buyers are looking for that nobody has than rather have something that the majority of buyers are looking for, but there's an abundance of, right? Right. That was was a key piece of it. So, okay. So you've done a few now, just on average per year, like how many of these would you do nowadays? So you can remember now I'm working more with clients, right? Because I can only do so much um, with ourselves. So now we're probably doing about uh, seven builds per year. uh, And uh, that keeps us pretty busy as well. And again, the role that I play, a lot of people always reach out to us because they see a lot of stuff we do on social media and it's, and, uh, but I'm not a builder. I work directly with some of the builders where I come in is really to help more understand what they should be buying. Like where should they be buying? Right. First of all, understanding what their requirements are. Is this just a spec home? Is this for their, you know, their dream home that they're building? But eventually if it's a spec home, then I'm like, okay, a lot of folks, they're loving Mississauga, like areas like Lauren Park, for example, where there's a lot of, you know, extravagant homes in the, you know, two, three, $4 million price point. And that's the area they know, and that's where they want to buy. But we'll, I'm very analytical, and that's my background on, on the technology on the sales side. So I'll look at it and say, well, how many houses actually in Mississauga in the last 365 days sold over $3 million? How many listings are there 
that you're competing with. So is there an area that is more uh, more beneficial to actually sell a two, $3 million home? And when you look at those stats, it's pretty alarming that you see that there's a huge difference. Like, and that's why we do a lot of stuff in Oakville, right? So uh, that is one of the reasons why you see for a lot of the investors, they'll engage with us to figure out where they should be building and then what they should be building. And then we help them on the execution side. So whether it's engaging them with architects, builders, trades, where to find some of the materials. Uh, and we see that right from the very beginning, right to the very end. Oh, that's good. So you're basically hand-holding them through their, their own process of doing this, what you've been doing exactly. for years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what we do. Okay. Very nice. So let's just say I take a piece of land in Oakville and there's a old bungalow. And, you know, like, give me an example of a deal that you might say is interesting and like what kind of outcome, what does it have? What does it not have inside? Like, where do you spend your money on? What do you do? Yeah. So, so it depends uh, if they're looking to do like a uh, rental, like a, whether it be a flip or again, whether it's for themselves and they're thinking of being there a couple of years and eventually, you know, selling it yeah, or whether they're looking flip. at, yeah. So a lot of people will generally be more excited about doing a flip because they see that as an easier, not an easier opportunity, less risk. And I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of the media. That's uh, all these TV shows on HGTV. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize that a lot of those shows, they're actually not reality. So I'm not, no, and not. I'm not going to call <laughs> anybody out, but it's all scripted. Yeah. You see them, you know, find a house and eventually like upgrade, like, uh, or do a renovation in a living room in a kitchen, right on an older house. And then you see the finished product. It's very sexy. And then they're like, okay, the house was bought for this much. The rental cost this much. And now the house is worth this much. I'm like, wait a minute. What about the rest? Of- so you need to imagine the buyer walking into that house. If that house still needs a roof, a mechanical system, washrooms upstairs, the value did not increase to what they're projecting it to increase. You have to do the rest of the house. What's the budget of doing that? So it's, it leaves a lot of these you know, people who are, get all excited about real estate investing and flipping homes, false expectations that they come in. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that I'm meeting have either bought the wrong property to renovate, uh, bought in the wrong area, or did the wrong type of re- renovation. And now we're in a situation where they're actually losing money, their time, the effort. The only good thing is, is that they probably learned something through that process. So what we try to do is to help them avoid making those mistakes. So to your question is, what would be the ideal? Well, the ideal, if you're doing, you need to understand the first thing is, what is the, uh, the cost of entry for the property? So if you're, for example, in Southwest Oakville, right now you're not really buying anything for under 800, right? And you're typically buying a bungalow, as you said. What we look for is to make sure that it has, the very first thing is in that area, in that community, that there's a discrepancy between what you can buy it at, right? Or I'll, I use the word discrepancy, but there's, I'll use a better word. There's a, a, a delta between what you can buy it at and what the most expensive house is selling for in that area, right? Now, if you look at the most expensive house and it's a brand new build, you can't use that because it's a completely different product. So you're looking for a house that's either been renovated or they did an addition and then use that as your press. And if there's not enough of a gap there, you don't want to be the pioneer and go in there and then create that gap, right? I don't mm-hmm. mind doing that for myself, but I don't want to be putting in our clients in that situation and that kind of risk. Makes sense. So, but back to uh, that bungalow is if it has the right footprint, then at that point, we need to figure out what's going to be the sale price, the end sale, like the targeted sale price, and then figure out, okay, based on what we have to invest in the reno, could we achieve it? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, 
understanding what are going to be the, the objections for any buyer wanting to pay that. So I'll be, again, rather than being conceptual, let's use numbers. You bought something sure. for 800000 and the goal is to sell it for $1.2 million, right? So if I'm buying it for 800000 and I know my rental is going to cost me about one hundred and fifty, what's going to be the objection for that buyer paying $1.2 million? You need to get that mindset. And the objection might be, well, maybe that bungalow didn't have a garage. Who wants to pay $1.2 million for a house that doesn't have a garage? Or maybe that objection right. is it's backing onto a school. Or maybe, it, it, and this is the most common one. This is probably the biggest mistake I see if any, it's if anybody's doing a flip is that they'll take that bungalow and they'll make it look pretty. They'll put a brand new kitchen in there, maybe open up a wall, change some of the, you know, the interior finishes, new flooring, new washroom. But they leave the, the layout pretty much the same. What, and what I mean by that is it had three small bedrooms to begin it with. It had one washroom. And somebody will buy it for 800 with one washroom, but the person paying 1.2 million does not want to have three tiny bedrooms and then share that washroom with the rest of their family. So what we'll mm -hmm. do is we'll take those bungalows and we'll convert them to two bedrooms and we'll add two washrooms. And then we're in the basement, which is an underutilized asset, we'll actually add another two bedrooms downstairs. So now we have a two plus two, and then we're going to add a really nice washroom downstairs. So altogether, now we have pretty much three washrooms throughout the entire house. And then we make sure that there's adequate parking and it's in a good location. A couple years back, people were like, you're absolutely crazy converting a three-bedroom home to a two-bedroom because you're devaluating it. I'm like, no. If you look at the people who are buying it, nobody wants to have – because, yeah, when you were buying it at 400000 or 500000 people were okay having three tiny bedrooms and one washroom. Right. $1.2 that's more of a pristine buyer and they're looking for certain things. So those are the kinds of things that we help people avoid making those mistakes and making the right decisions when doing a rental. I was going to say, do you ever find that adding a second story is, is worth doing? The answer is, do I find it? No, it's not. I, I, that is one of the biggest, uh, probably bigger mistakes rather than people leaving it exactly with the same layout is that people are thinking, okay, I'll, I'll, cause if you have to add a second story, here's the thing is you're probably going to do a new kitchen. You're going to probably do new washrooms, new flooring, new windows. And now, now you need a new roof, right? And now the whole second story. And then you're going to do the same exterior cladding. By the time you have to do any type of addition, whether it's a second story or whether it's going to be an addition across the back or side, you're almost going to find that it's going to be the same cost or slightly more to actually tear the house and build brand new. Wow. Yeah. So anytime we're looking to do a rental, it has to have the right footprint. As soon as we have to add square footage, we almost dismiss it entirely, right? Now, when does it make sense to add square footage, right, to an existing home? And we do classes. It's a call, a class called Renovate or Relocate, right? Okay. And the only time it ever makes sense is if somebody's absolutely in love with their house, their mom or dad lives across the street who watch their kids and they don't want to move and they absolutely love the neighbor. Like that is a person that will be, it makes sense for them to do an addition, right? But as an investment, as a flip, to do an addition, yeah, I, I would avoid it like the plague. Mm, that's interesting because right. sometimes I'll drive by and I'm like, oh, they added an addition. And <laughs> so usually the, the, you don't get as much money back, but it, it makes sense. And, and I do agree that having more washrooms, especially as a family, is better. And the two basement bedrooms, ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got two upstairs, you've got two downstairs. As long as you've got two in the main floor or like somewhere above ground, I think that's that That's right, sir. And here's the thing is I know that it's not going to cater to everybody having two bedrooms upstairs, especially if it's a younger family that has young kids. They don't want their kids downstairs in the basement. But keep in mind, again, with technology and lifestyles changing, 
you know, as long as a basement has larger windows, and then now people have typically have cameras in their in their in their kids' rooms to watch them. But back to my earlier point, I don't want to cater to everybody, right? I rather cater to that person that is more the empty nester that is now looking to downsize, where it's probably somebody who is their marriage didn't work out, and now they're getting divorced, and they have teenage kids. There's so many other people that that house would cater to, but nobody else is actually building that house for them, right? And that's why we do really well because, again, we have a product that we really don't have much competition with. So what do you consider, like, I mean, because it, it is modern, but what, like, what do you consider your product to be in your words? Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that people are like, oh, I, you know, that house is modern. And, and they're like, well, what defines modern? I think it's different to everybody, but I will say that eight out of 10 times, a lot of the modern houses that I see there, and this is not me trying to be overly critical, it's just people are like, remember the game Tetris, like like with Nintendo? Mm-hmm. It's just blocks that people are building and then it's just, they get really busy and it's a lot of windows. A lot of times they're using different cladding. For me, modern is just, I love that simple classic modern look where it's very clean lines, not too busy, real large open spaces. And then you really kind of dress it up with more of some, whether it be your interior finishes like your furniture or artwork. Um, because then the house becomes timeless because you can always change out furniture. Uh, whereas if you see a lot of houses now, a lot of it is the details, like what, whether it be, you know, the crown moldings or the flooring that they use, they're using that to create that wow factor where, where modern is really more about the architecture and the lines of the property. Right. So, Absolutely. So, yeah. so do you work with somebody to draw the architect to do this or at this point in time, is your team doing it on their own and you're kind of overseeing from, from above? Like, how are you, doing that now yeah so again if it's for a client i always start off by with a client kind of putting together a bit of a vision board of what you know they've seen whether it's images on social media or whether on the internet um, and then we get a feel for what they like and then what i try to do is put them in touch with an architect that is kind of in line with that type of now if what they like uh is again some of the pro like other projects that i think well let's just say what if they like it on a scale of one to ten it's a five I might encourage them, hey, what about this? What about that? Because maybe their context isn't quite there and maybe broaden it. But then we, what we do is we typically bring an architect in and then we're actually privy to those meetings. We're engaged with the architect because we're in so many of these homes, finished homes, where a lot of architects, they'll be involved in doing the design, but they don't live in the house and they don't have to deal with the objections when people are trying to sell the house. We're, we're constantly in that realm. So we actually participate in those meetings and are like, no, I really think, you know what, that powder room isn't big enough. This is a $3 million house. That powder room is just as important as the kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because again, that's where your guests are going to be going. And things like about functionality, about whether you have a a pool outside and access to maybe perhaps a three-piece washroom from inside or through a walkout basement, all these different things that where you start understanding how people are going to use the home. So yeah, we'll we'll typically recommend an architect if they don't have one, but we'll be very involved in that process through right to the very finish before they go to permits. Where should I invest with your host, Sarah Larvey? We'll be right back. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, 
work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself. And she works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis. It was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com. And then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. Back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. That's great. So like, let's just say somebody is not around Oakville, because I know we talked about Oakville a little bit, but you know, we have listeners from across the country. If they wanted to do something, if they wanted to find a house and build and make it modern and really try to bring it to that higher end type of home, like what are some of the things that they should be looking at for neighborhood wise and just in general? Yeah. So on the neighborhood, again, it's going to be an area preference. Again, it depends what other things. Is this for somebody more for their primary or somebody actually building on spec? Let's just say as an investor trying to do it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, okay. if it's for your primary, it's different. <laughs> yeah, different. Uh, there's some similar in some areas, but there is going to be differences because for me, I'll give an example. If it's somebody that is building it for their primary, they're going to be thinking more kind of long term and, and the cost of carrying that property, right? So that they can maintain it. If it's more on spec, um, then they, they, they may look at it a lot differently and say, hey, I'm prepared to spend a lot more on land, on the build. Because if I spend X amount more when I'm selling it, is there more profit in that project than if I was building it based on my original limitations of what I can afford you know, to carry this house for the next five, 10 years, right? So, but I would say if they're building it on spec, they're very, like, it goes back to, and I, and I see it all the time. People see somebody else do it and they're like, I could do it. And, uh, and then the very first thing I'm like, okay, where are you, you going to built like what street you're going to build on and they'll look for the best deal on on a piece of property which is the biggest mistake you don't want to look for the best deal you want to look for the best opportunity and i've already talked about what that is it's going to be that delta between the what your total cost is going to be on the the purchase of the land and on the build versus what you're going to be able to sell it for where 
the and then the very next thing is what can I do to differentiate the house, right? So design being on the modern side, but what are some of the other things? And it all is going to come down to what is the expected sale price? Once you know your sale price and you know that buyer, then you're like, okay, what does that buyer want, right? Mm-hmm. What is not what is that buyer right now if they're looking today, what are they not able to find? So I'll give an example. One of the builds that we did, we knew that the house was going to be over 4 million. And we're like, okay, somebody looking at $4 million, they're probably doing well successfully, right? What are some things that we, you know, if we were to describe that person? Well, number one, they probably have a number of toys, cars. So I looked at, and this was, it just astonished me. If I looked at how many houses were like in Oakville at the time that were listed over 2 million that had a two-car garage, pretty much the majority did. As soon as I went to a three-car garage, it literally dropped down to 16, wow. 16 Avila properties. And of those 16, a lot of them were like 5 million, 6 million, 10 million, mm-hmm. right? So, but then I said, how many have a four-car garage? And then literally there was like three properties. And right. some of them were like on farms. It wasn't even new houses. But huh. so when I said, how many have like a, a three-car garage that was a newer house that would be even – so those were the kinds of things. So that that is what I would suggest is that you do is understand your buyer. The other thing too – that I think is so gets, doesn't get the attention that is, is closets. So especially in a master bedroom, I'll go through a $3 million home and then the closet is slightly bigger than a house that would have been maybe 1.5 million. Hmm. Where when we're doing a closet, we want to create these like very elaborate dressing rooms where you're walking, like one of the properties we did, you know, we had a full, at the very end of the closet, full length, you know, uh, mirror. Behind the mirror, there was like a TV. And then literally with the automation system that we had into it is like you had a program so that if you set an alarm for like, let's say six o'clock, the speakers would turn on to your favorite, you know, news station, the TV would, and the closet would come on. So, and the same thing with the, inside the master ensuite, there'd be a TV behind the mirror as well. So you're kind of walking and getting ready in the morning, but getting your updated in terms of like news or whether it be just ending in the right state of mind. So those are the kinds of things that we do to help differentiate. And uh, so when somebody comes to this house, it's memorable. And then they also feel the most important thing is like, Hey, if I don't take action on this house, when am I going to find another house right. like this? And then that's where the sense of urgency and we generally see an offer. Okay. So what about like backyards and pools? Do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Very critical. So again, these buyers don't want to basically buy something. The reason why they're buying something like a resale home is because they don't have the time or effort or probably the knowledge to execute. So, and when people buy based on emotion, especially a modern house, this is a key point on a modern house. What does a modern house have a lot of? Glass, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine now you're in a modern house and it's all glass across the backyard. That backyard now is an extension of the inside of the house. So when I see people build a modern house and they don't want to do any landscaping or minimal landscaping, and to me, if I'm building, if it's me personally, I'm going all out. I'm doing a pool. I'm going to do the landscaping, the outdoor kitchen, the cabana, because I'm definitely doing it in an area where I know that I'm not capped on the sale price, that I'll be able to set that precedent, the new high. Right. So we will do like, I think a pool is very critical. And again, people will come back. Not everybody wants pools. I'm like, well, I'm not, not catering to everybody. Right. I do think it's really important that, you know, they leave enough of a budget to do the, and I look at any house that's actually set a precedent, the majority of them had a fully finished backyard with a pool. And the difference between the house that didn't have a pool to the house that did have a pool would probably be somewhere about $200,000 between the Delta. Mm. But the, it's not, 
you know, when you're making a decision about whether I do a pool or whether I do these type of appliances or whatever it is, I always tell people, ask this question. If I were to spend this, will I sell it for more? And that's important. But here's the other important question. Will I sell it faster? Right. So let's just say the pool and landscaping cost me 200000 Even if I only sell it for 200000 more, but I sell it faster, it's still worth me doing. It's like an insurance policy. Absolutely. Now, obviously, you're doing a lot of mentoring and a lot of coaching. Now, if you're looking at an $800,000 property and you're going to be spending two hundred or you know maybe more thousand, are you finding that the people that are working with you right now, is it private money that they're using? Are they bringing their own capital? Like, is it a mix? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mix. But a lot of it is their uh, equity within their current properties. They're pulling out some of that equity to do the, to do the rental. But I'm going to tell you, we're doing a lot less rentals, right? One of the questions you asked me earlier is, you know, based on the investing, there was a time, like, again, when the market was appreciating, uh, and I think this is a really important point for a lot of your listeners, is that, you know, I, I look at a lot of people who flipped homes and who have been successful at it, especially in the last couple of years, like last 10, 15 years where the market's been doing what it's doing. Here's the question I ask them. What did you buy the house for? And they tell me. What did you spend on the rental? Then they tell me. I'm like, okay, when did you sell it? And they tell me, they tell me how much money they made. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if you didn't do it, that renovation, by the time you bought it and by the time it's sold, what would you make? Mm-hmm. And, they tell, and then they tell me, and guess what? It's almost the exact same number if they hadn't done the renovation. So did they make money on the natural appreciation of the property or did they make money on the rental? Right, that's right? a great question. Right, and I'm gonna tell you. So when you talk to anybody and they're bragging about how much money they made on a rental, ask them that question. You'll be so surprised. So, and I recognize that. And I know a lot of people that engage with us are really excited about doing a rental. And I don't want to discourage them because if they, they may have an opportunity, so we'll evaluate each individual opportunity. But ultimately, I think what you're doing, right, buying properties and holding on to them is the right way properties. Yeah, you know what? I'm actually doing the birth strategy. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll flip them and then I'll just refinance them and then I hold them. So like right now, we have, I think, seven properties. I think you have nine, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Nine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, congratulations. That, that's and I, I, what you've accomplished thus far. So, but yeah, my biggest regret is not holding on to more of them. Hmm. And I think now with the market being, I don't want to say, I'll say a little bit less predictable. Okay. I think one of the things that you want to be doing is to go in to do a reno. And after I just said that, a lot of people who made their money was on what happens if the market doesn't appreciate another five or 10%. Right. So to me, when we're investing and we're doing like, whether it be rentals, it's less rentals. It's going to be, I'm really pushing more now because on a rental, I'll give, I'll give an example. Let's just say you bought something for 800,000 and you spent 150. Now you're at 950. Then you go to sell it. Right. And then the realist, and you're going to sell it for, let's say the targeted list price is 1.2 million. It sells for 1 million 50. Then you pay real estate fees. Like what are you left at the very and end? And, <laughs> and then taxes. So what are you left at the end? But here's the, here's the, actually what's even more concerning what if you what if you anticipated spend 150 but you end up spending between carrying costs now you're at 175 mm-hmm. let's just say you know what the market your expected sale price is not 150 now it's like a million one now you could potentially not make anything right so when we're looking at investing like more of a, a spec type project we want to make sure the margins are so huge that even if we overspent and undersold, that we're still going to make money. So again, an example of that is if you were buying land at 1,050,000, right? So like at 1,500,000 for land, 
right? And then you were doing a build at 1,500,000, right? So now you're at 3 million. But if that house is going to sell for 4.5 million, there's 1.5 million. So even if you overspend by 250,000, undersell by 250,000, there's still a, a massive spread. So if you're investing in real estate, you have to look at the bigger numbers, right? And if you don't have the ability to get those mortgages and that kind of money, then I think the right place to invest in real estate is going to be in those single family homes or maybe converting them to legal duplexes or whether it be student rentals. And us personally, we've, we've, we're doing all of those things because number one, like I have a student rental, we were doing well on the flips, but a lot of our clients, you know, they wanted student rentals and we wouldn't get one. Like we wouldn't encourage them to buy one until we had our own personal experience with it. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, but I think that's the key thing now is we're moving more to that, but we are still doing a lot of these larger builds because there's still profit to be made there, but not as much on the, on the flips, like the rentals. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, it, it was, so for me, when, you know, when I was looking at your work, I'm like, I won't, that's a goal for me is to be able to hire you <laughs> for my own personal next uh-huh. year house. I, that doesn't have to be necessarily in Oakville, but uh-huh. I love all the modern stuff as well. When I do my burrs, I always look at like backup strategies and the cash flow piece as well. Like it's just, a, it's just a, like, you're just playing in the bigger sandbox essentially with the bigger numbers, but uh-huh. It's a, it's a great goal and your properties are beautiful that you're putting together. And I can ask you questions, many, many questions one after the other, but just for time purposes, the next part of this podcast is our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and okay. Ruben, you're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. I'm ready. All right. Number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? I'm going to admit something. I don't read that much, but one of the books I did read was with Frank McKinney, Make It Big. So, and that book is what literally changed everything I did in real estate. So yeah, definitely that would be the book. Okay. Awesome. Number two, what about your favorite podcast? Oh man, I listen a lot to Joe Rogan. So that's probably going to be up there. Okay. All right. Great. What do you do for fun aside from real estate? So I think it's real important to have hobbies. So one for me, it's I definitely enjoy hitting the gym with my son and then also bought a bike recently. So I've been cruising a lot. Very nice. If somebody lost all their money or if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Uh, one is leveraging the existing network that I have. Okay. Right? And then basically, I, I think it's the right opportunity to the table. Money comes. It's just finding the money's not the issue. It's no. just not having the right opportunity. So, and I think I can find an opportunity fairly quickly and then work with people to basically execute on the financing side. And it would be a much more rapid pace to what it took us to accomplish what we have to be able to start from like ground zero now. Absolutely. And you know, Bunny, you're right. I will second that. Like when you have a good opportunity or you have a good deal or you've done a few deals, people will actually say, hey, let's, let's work together. I have money or, you know, private money is, is also pretty easy to find mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> for the short term projects. So number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Um, I would absolutely say find a single family home that is almost pretty much carries itself. So it may be a non-legal duplex. It may be a house that's going to be a little bit further out, perhaps even in Windsor, right? But it is going to be the house that has the least amount of risk. And 
and like I said, at the same time that they can get a tenant and they're actually paying their costs. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just in Windsor today. <laughs> oh, were you? Okay. Uh, well, I was driving back this morning. I, I went last night, but yeah, definitely the, the prices are good there. <laughs> and they've gone up dramatically. I, I wasn't actually interested in investing in Windsor because at the time it was like 130,000. If the market goes up by 10, that's 13 grand. That yeah. doesn't excite me, but, and it was the same thing with Hamilton, but now like when you look at prices and what they're going up at, so. Yeah, absolutely. So Ruben, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more? Well, one on social media, we're on a bunch of different platforms, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and it's just under the Furtado group. So it's the T-H-E Furtado, F-U-R-T-A-D-O group. You'll find us there. That's probably the easiest. All right. Perfect. And any final last words of advice? Yeah, I, I think that the thing about real estate investing is I know a lot of people t- talk about it and say that they want to do it. But I'll give you this. I, I think there's about 50,000 uh, members that are part of the Toronto Real Estate Board. And of the 50,000 members, I think it's like 35% of them don't even do a single deal. Right. Those are scary stats. Yeah. So think about it. Here are people who actually took the time to go through the courses, which are getting harder to go through, right? And did all the tests, paid all the money, and they haven't done anything with it. So anybody listening to this podcast or going to a, you know, a seminar, like you're not even putting half the time and effort as these people who took the course and they did nothing. So the likelihood is that a lot of people listening are not going to do anything either. Right. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to realize that you can fall into that trap or you can be the one person that says, no, I'm going to take some sort of action and take some sort of small step. Whether that step is to call somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm not going to buy a house, but I just want to go see a couple of houses because that then may lead to, hey, now I'm actually interested in maybe exploring purchasing a property. Right. So I think that's the key thing is, is the ability for people to, you know, not be just exploring it, but to take constant little small steps and getting closer to actually doing their first. Because I think once they invest their first one, I think at that point, and they start seeing that, hey, I could do this and there's some money to be made. And then it just becomes a snowball effect. Yeah, absolutely. Take that first step, stop the analysis paralysis and just figure out what your next step is. So if you're listening at home, what is your small step? So if you want to send me an email for accountability, let's, uh, let's put it out there. One small step. Awesome. Well, on that note, Ruben, thank you so much for being on the show and providing some really awesome, valuable insights and sharing your knowledge. No problem. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away And eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster, 
and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.